I love this. This is one of my favorite Shakespeare monologue speeches because it's so cool how Shakespeare uses this symbol of his knights and his kind of entourage to, to almost symbolize like the like mental state of King Lear throughout the play. He brings it to this comparison of beasts and creatures. They have their very base needs covered, but it's like what comes after that, that really like defines us, gives us identity, what's important to us, what are we going to fight for? Hi everyone, in today's recording I'll chat with Ian and Anna about Act 2 of King Lear. But first, a quote about Shakespeare that I really like. It's from Robert Graves, who once wrote, The remarkable thing about Shakespeare is that he is really very good, in spite of all the people who say he is very good. (laughs) Which I find true and funny. Shakespeare is one of those people who has an enormous reputation. It almost couldn't be greater. And so you might be inclined to think that this reputation is overblown. How could he possibly live up to all this hype? I love Graves' understated way of saying he really does live up to the hype, you know, in spite of all the nutjobs like me who keep on going on and on about him. He really is very good. (laughs) I hope these podcasts help to bring out, in some small way, some of the ways in which Shakespeare, as Graves says, is really very good. To hear more about some of these ways, let's go into that chat between me and Anna and Ian. How are you? Good. How are you? You can hear me okay? Yeah. Uh, so we don't know each other. Not yet. I mean, I'm no. looking forward to getting to know everyone in the class. Uh, but you know Ian, right? Yeah. We actually went to high school together like our senior year. Oh, so, no way. Yeah. We decided to take this class together. Oh, cool. Hi, Ian. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Good. I was just asking Anna how you know each other. You went to high school together. Yeah. That's great. We're going to spend most of our time as a class talking about the relationship between Lear and his children. And Gloucester and his children, they'll come into it, you know, from time to time. We can't really ignore them, but they're not as interesting to me. You know, it's, I mean, Gloucester gets his eyes poked out. So that's pretty interesting. And I guess Edgar dresses up as this weird beggar, and that's pretty interesting. But really, I mean, Lear and, you know, uh, Cordelia and stuff and the fool, that's really the heart of the play. So we won't spend as much time talking about Edgar and Edmund and all this weird plot and relationship. But I did want to ask you guys why, because Act 2 starts with a scene between Edgar and Edmund, and Edgar is persuading his, sorry, I always get these two characters confused. One of the difficulties of this play. Edmund is convincing his brother to run away because his father, Gloucester, is mad at him. So he even like gives himself a fake wound. It's like, okay, pretend to fight with me. And Edmund even gives himself a fake wound. Why is Shakespeare writing a play in which these two plots are going along parallel and almost never really interact? I mean, they interact kind of later. The characters will cross paths, but they're not really interacting for most of the play. They're kind of on their own separate tracks. I mean, so this is an open-ended question. This isn't a question that I think has a correct answer. You're free to speculate, you know, however you think. Why is Shakespeare giving us the, the story of two families and not just the story of one? That was something that actually struck me most about Act 2 was just like this juxtaposition of these two families the whole time. And I loved comparing when I think it's Edmund, he's talking to, is it Regan? Is that how you say it? Or is it Regan? I think it's Regan. Regan? Okay. 
Gloucester's talking to Regan and he's explaining how like his son is betraying him. I'm like, wouldn't that like make you feel a little bit of remorse? You're hearing something that you just did to your own father, but like she doesn't show anything like that. So more than anything, I think it's so interesting because you're constantly comparing it to this Mm -hmm. other story and it makes it almost more terrible what the sisters are what the daughters are doing to their dad because they're seeing it go on in front of their eyes in a different family that's great so it's they are mirror images of each other for us but that thought what you just hadn't hadn't really occurred to me that they're mirror images for the characters themselves like you can their heartlessness or their virtue depending on what character we're talking about Mm-hmm. gets magnified by what they see and how they react to what they see. I like that idea. I don't know. Any thoughts, Ian? I was thinking the same thing. I mean, you see with Shakespeare so often the way that he parallels action and that these two stories are going on at the same time. And I think one of the coolest things is seeing kind of the difference between the villains in the play. Of, I mean, you see these sisters that, I mean, they're treacherous. They, they betray their father or whatever. But the treachery of Edmund is so much more, so much deeper, I feel like it's a lot, you see a lot more of these themes of like betrayal and guilt. And I don't know, Edmund's whole story, just that he's this bastard son that like, it's just so much more tragic than the stories of the sisters. So you see kind of these two sides and I feel like you can relate a lot more with Edmund's villainy than you can with the sisters. You see the sisters as just these, oh, these heartless daughters of a king that want to steal everything. But you see Edmund as, oh, I can kind of see why he is doing this whole this whole plot. Like you can relate a little bit more with Edmund, I feel. I like that comment a lot. It, we don't really learn why the sisters behave the way they do. I mean, we kind of, le- they grumble about how imposing Lear and his hundred knights are. They're kind of making a ruckus. But that's not really a motivation to do what they end up doing. We don't really get into their minds in the way that we get into Edmund's mind. And you're right, Ian, I think he has, this is in Act 1, his speech about his bastardy and, you know, what is the difference between humans bred in the bonds of marriage and human, you know, he's like, I've met lots of humans that are bred in marriage that are like idiots and fops. He claims this kind of natural power, you know. So it has a kind of strange logic to it, that speech, you know, and we, we certainly don't agree with his behavior, but we might agree with his frustration at the customs of the time. So you're right. It, the nature of villainy, or the, maybe a better way to say it would be the ways in which children can rebel against their parents are brought out by having more examples in different, across different families. That's great. So is there anything else that we need to talk about in scene one? So in scene one, Edmund convinces Edgar to run away. He gives himself a fake wound. He convinces his father, Gloucester, that Edgar is this horrible person. We we could dispense with scene one unless you have anything else that you think needs to be said about it. I actually love the question that you sent us that was kind of asking about, like, why is there, like, no one in charge and why is there this shift? And I guess it's probably because I took American Heritage last semester or something, but I was thinking, like, the human predicament cycle and like right when somebody falls out of power, it kind of goes into chaos. And so I was just kind of thinking of that and how they're in like this stage of like anarchy almost. Different people are taking different powers. But I want to know what both of you thought about that because I wasn't really sure why there was such a big shift in Act 2. Like. That's a great thing to observe. I mean, just I, I'd love to hear from Ian, but just to highlight this. So Lear dispenses with his power and his titles and his authority 
and his land. He gives it. He gives it all away. He does say in Act One that he will retain the kind of I can't remember his exact phrase. He will retain the name of king and stuff. Um, but he's giving most of it away. And then yeah, as soon as Act Two begins, we have brother against brother. That kind of really starts to flare. Kent and Oswald have this horrible fight. They're kind of calling each other these amazingly horrendous names. And then when Kent, sorry, when um, Lear comes back on the scene in Act Four. He's not obeyed. He's not listened to. Who put my man in the stocks? Nobody is caring to answer his question. Who who is in charge? One might ask oneself, and the clear answer is nobody. What is what is the purpose of authority, or the purpose of leadership, or the purpose of monarchs? Anna alludes to this cycle. Which I'd love to hear more about. But yeah, Ian, jump in. Right. Yeah. Like I was I was kind of thinking about that as I was reading, just seeing that. Yeah. Just as soon as kind of Act Two starts. It seems that it's not as much of a problem of authority, but a problem of respect mm. that I see kind of right away is that just nobody really respects each other so that nobody's authority is respected. Like that seems to be like the big problem. And that's kind of why I, everybody's authority just kind of tanks because nobody has any respect of anybody else. And also nobody is acting respectable. I mean, maybe right. nobody has any respect of anyone else because I mean, who after act one is acting in anything close to an admirable way. Right. Who would, who are we supposed to look up to in act two? I mean, maybe Edgar, he doesn't do anything quote unquote wrong, but he's not exactly like a noble leader. Not yet. You know what I mean? So well, I don't know. Yeah. I, maybe we, I think we could spend 60 more seconds teasing this out. Does this therefore imply, and, and I'd love more American heritage thoughts, like tomorrow, <laughs> I mean, we could get topical for a minute. I don't, I don't like getting too political, but tomorrow is Inauguration Day. And um, so we're having this, you know, hopefully, hopefully, first time, you know, it, certainly in my life, I have to insert this word, hopefully, uh, we're having this hopefully tra- peaceful transition of power tomorrow. What is the danger of, and, and you know, if you read in the news, it's like Biden hurries to do this, Biden hurries to do that, Biden hurries to get his cabinet members appointed, Biden. I was even reading one silly article about how the White House cleaners are only given like five hours to go in and do their job. So everybody involved seems extremely worried about this gap, you know, this like post-Trump, pre-Biden gap, where there might be for a few seconds or a few minutes nobody in charge why are people right to be worried about this gap people feel safer when there is someone there yeah and why might this be i mean because the very reason that we have this authority is kind of to prevent that state of like chaos state of nature whatever you want to call it and if there is no one to look up to for some kind of like organization we kind of freak out if it's someone that we like or if it's someone that we don't and so I, I would say they're preventing that more than anything, and especially how heightened things have been and how tense things have been with this election. I think they definitely have a reason to worry, right. but that's an interesting question. <laughs> if I kind of bring it back to, to Shakespeare himself, like he grapples with this question a lot in a lot of his plays, this question right. of authority and, um, and yeah, the val- validity of authority is like a huge theme in a lot of his plays. And I feel like, I mean, especially in King Lear, like this is a huge criticism of how things are run and that mm. that this passive power doesn't work and that mm. there should be like another way to do this uh, from what Shakespeare is saying, at least. And that, yeah, when there's not somebody in charge and when it's run this way that you can just be like, oh, 
yeah, sure. My daughters, yeah, they run the kingdom now. Like, of course, there's going to be tons of problems with just passing it off like that. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've both said such great things. We might not like this argument, but in play after play, Ian, you're right to observe that Shakespeare does seem to imply that society functions better when there's a kind of more concentrated authority. We'll talk about all the ways in which this concentrated authority, Lear in particular, is flawed and weak and vain and angry and petty, you know? So say what you want about his character, but when you disperse the power, like like, like we see in Act 2, it, you, you, I love your phrase, and things get passed on. Like, who do you turn to to solve disputes? Who do you turn to to be the ultimate arbiter? One daughter can pass the buck to the next, right? There's no one. If somebody insults another person, who do you, who are you supposed to go to, to to solve those kinds of problems? And Anne, I love what you say about the state of nature because the state of nature becomes an important theme in this play. Edmund evokes the state of nature as this kind of primal god, authority, giving him the power, quote unquote, to do what he does. But there's something about nature that is scary too. There's something about organizational structures that work against the kind of arbitrary brutality of nature. I don't know. Um, yeah, so nobody's in charge. Scene, act two, scene two, yeah, more chaos. I think the act two, scene two is just another example of more chaos. I love this moment in scene two where Regan, you know, Kent's getting himself in trouble because he, he also has a kind of temper problem. And they decide to put him in the stocks, you know. And Cornwall says, fetch forth the stocks. As I have life and honor there, he shall sit till noon. And Regan says, till noon? Till night, my lord, and all night too. So there for the first time, we're getting a glimpse into her true... I don't think before this, we know how cruel-hearted these sisters are. Slowly, we're, we're being shown. Um, One thing that I thought was interesting about scene two was just that um, that whole dynamic between Kent and Oswald. Just, again, like two guys that just start fighting. And I mean we don't really have any reason to why they're fighting. Like sure. Kent and Oswald had that little kind of back and forth in what, like scene one or two. Yeah. But like, it wasn't any grounds for Kent to like straight out attack Oswald. <laughs> like we don't see, we don't know why it's happening. And I feel like it's just like another example that Shakespeare is saying of just how everybody kind of has that state of nature in them and it can just like come out, you know, and it's yeah. like a theme that continues, like people just do things for no obvious reason. It's kind of, yeah, another look into that state of nature. We know that Kent is upset at the way in which his daughters and their husbands and their entourages are treating the king. Kent, Kent's ultimate loyalty is always with the king. So anyone or any family who disrespects him is going to get him angry. But this angry? <laughs> you know, just to give you people listening a flavor, you know, a reminder of, this is what Kent says at the very beginning of Act 2, Scene 2. It's like, he meets Oswald. Oswald says, I know thee not. And Kent says, fellow, I know thee. Oswald, what dost thou know me for? Kent says, a knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred pound, filthy horsed stocking knave, a lily livered action taking horse and glass gazing, glass gazing, you know, like narcissist, super serviceable, finical rogue, one trunk inheriting slave, <laughs> one that would be a bod in way of good service. I mean, on and on and on. It's just like, Shakespeare's just having fun. You know, you can tell. I like your comment, Ian. It's okay. like yeah. when there's no king or when there's no authority, when there's no check on this, these primal very human. I mean, I don't want to say that they're not human. They're very, they're all too human. 
urges, then they come out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we go to act, we go to scene three, which is a tiny little thing. It's just Edgar saying to the world that he's now going to go disguise himself. I don't know. I mean, any, any, what's your hot take about this? I think I say with, you know, in that chat with my wife about Act One, that Lee, uh, Shakespeare isn't really writing things in a quote unquote realistic way. So there's lots that happens in this play that you, that you might raise an eyebrow or two to and think, is this really the best way? You know, strip himself of clothes and get all muddy and pretend to be a homeless beggar. It's not really realism. I, yeah. What's your reaction is my question. So this is totally open-ended. Initially, it's just kind of extreme, like you were saying, but it kind of makes you think about identity, kind of like that question that you sent us. And it seems like a lot of our identity has to do with the reputation that other people have of Mm. us. And in this moment, he loses every good reputation that he's ever had. All of a sudden, um, his brother puts these two identities on him, that he's um, betraying his father. And what he sees from his perspective is that his father's mad at him for something that he doesn't even know what. And so as soon as you place those new identities on someone, it almost strips away what they have as their own identity. And it makes them question like, who am I? Yeah. And this is when he's like, well, it's better to be an insane beggar than Edgar. Edgar, I nothing am. Like it's better to be this crazy, insane person and lose your reputation, but live than try to face all of those things that have been put on you. Yeah, I was thinking a similar thing, just that, yeah, like the symbolism of him just uh, stripping all of his clothes, all of the stuff from his past life and becoming this, this, uh, this filthy beggar is, yeah, really says a lot about the character that he's becoming and kind of becomes throughout the rest of the play. It is a symbolic, I think that's the best word, is it's not a realistic action, it's a kind of symbolic action. I mean, this is too extreme for a normal person to do, you know, in, in the world, but it is a kind of symbolic renunciation of a society that was clearly broken so he's like well maybe if i start from scratch you know let's let's blank slate it and see if we can build a new life for myself that you know it all went to pot there so if we if we reboot then maybe the the only way is up you know edgar i nothing am okay i told you in advance that act uh, scene four is where we're going to spend most of our time so i love what happens at the very beginning it's just slightly redundant um, exchange between Lear and Kent. Where should I start reading here? This is Act 2, Scene 4. And Lear says, huh, makest thou this shame thy pastime? Kent, no, my lord. Because he's in the stocks, you know? Like so, Lear's like, you know, so you're doing this for fun? Kind of weird joke. Um, Lear says, I'm skipping a few lines, what's he that hath so much thy place mistook to set thee here? So basically, I mean, this doesn't need my explication, but... Uh, you are my messenger, you are my servant, and who has been daring and brazen enough to put my servant in this position? Can't it is both he and she, your son and daughter, right? Your son-in-law and your daughter. I love this little thing. Lear, no. Kent, yes. Lear, no, I say. Kent, I say, yay. Lear, no, no, they would not. Kent, yes, they have. Lear, by Jupiter, I swear no. Kent, by Juno, I swear I. I'm not asking for any kind of deep symbolic interior, like what does this really mean? But if you're writing this, Let's you know. Let's try to read the mind of Shakespeare. Why do this weird back and forth? I think it's hard to to see on paper necessarily what was being acting acted there, but I can imagine that as this was being directed on stage, that as you're saying, no, yes, no, yes, no, Lear is becoming more and more okay. Like he's getting more and more like angry, 
like as kind of the no's go on, like he's right. starting to believe it himself. <laughs> um, and then at the end, instead of just like denying it, like, no, that couldn't happen. He's saying like, no, no, there's no way I can't believe this. Like he starts kind of denying it more and more while because he's accepting it. Yeah. So it, that's great. It would heighten as a dramatist, you could heighten the tension. You can, you could make right. the, the um, conversation get more and more escalated, more and more heated. I, th- I also think it's just a, another proof that Lear is kind of still blind in a way, you know, like people are telling him things that are true. It's like wall of denial after wall of denial. You know, he's just can't see. He won't listen. He's deaf and blind. I also love, we'll see uh, Samuel Beckett at the very end of our semester, pick up these weird little short little interchanges and build a whole play out of them. So yeah, who put my man in the stocks? He, he wants to know, he wants to know. He gets madder and madder. I'm turning pages now. I'm now at line 90. He gets quite mad. Vengeance, plague, death, confusion, right? I asked you this question. How did I phrase it in the email? Yeah. What do we owe the elderly or the dead or the past? I like this question. I think it's an important question. And I mean, this comes up like page after page. Here's just one moment where it comes up. So I'll read this moment and then I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. This is right after the vengeance, plague, death, confusion. So that's in that's line 90 of Act 2, Scene 4. Gloucester says, well, my good Lord, I have informed them. So, Lear, inform them? So, I guess I should give some context here. Um, Lear's like, you know, I want to talk to my daughters. Where are my daughters? I want my man out of the stocks. Go get my daughters. Get them to get my man out of the stocks. Gloucester says, I have informed them. Lear, of course, expects to be obeyed instantly. It's like, I told them to come. Lear, inform them. Dost thou understand me, man? Gloucester, I, my good lord. The king would speak with Cornwall. The dear father would with his daughter speak. Commands, tends, service. Are they informed of this? Right? So this is just a microscopic example of a larger problem. So uh, an old man is asking for his daughters to come. He has something to say. It's like this happens every day in a family, you know? <laughs> I'm in another room and I want something from my son. He's eight. So he's now at the age where I can start wonderfully kind of using him as my go-getter. He's another. And so I call him and he doesn't come. So I call him again louder and he doesn't come. And I call him a third time, slightly agitated, you know, he doesn't come. What, who is morally obligated to do what in this situation? That's my question. Is he morally obligated to come? Am I morally in the right to demand him to come? What do we owe each other as as parent and child? I would say ultimately, maybe it's because of the household I grew up in. I think the child definitely has to obey the parent in that however old they are. There's just this level of respect and honor that you should always have for them. Because, yeah, like they they brought you up, whatever that upbringing was like. Like you're here, you're still alive and you do owe that to them. And one thing I quickly wanted to mention, just tying it into what we just talked about, is I feel like in this scene, he's still like really kind of denying the fact that his daughters would disobey him. Like you see that in his exchange with his servant and you see it again here. He's like, this is like an act of rebellion, as if he's Mm -hmm. shocked that there's some act of rebellion when really all up to this, there's been so many acts of rebellion, but this is when he finally says it. And so I guess it it should be expected, but at the same time, it shouldn't be expected from these daughters that they come. This is great. Wonderfully nuanced. You're arguing that children have to, that parents, you know, have a kind of authority that children need to respect. Lear's daughters, he should have seen by now that they don't really. So on one hand, he does have the right to be upset. But on the other hand, he shouldn't really be surprised. You know, yeah, this is exactly. great. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I love in that same line, or I think it's in it's line 100, actually. Yeah. When he says, are they informed of this? My breath and blood mm. saying that they're, you know, they're his, like they're, especially in, I mean, the society that they lived in. It was very important that children, I mean, we, we see kind of our, our society today. And I mean, children get to the point where they're adults, they can make their own decisions. They can kind of go off and do their own thing. But still, I feel like, yeah, this level of respect is expected from them for their parents, even if they don't follow every single thing their parents say. But in society back then, like it was Mm -hmm. very important for children to respect their parents and respect their elders. So, I mean, yeah, seeing this, and I agree with Anna that, I mean, even though they should respect him, they haven't been respecting him. He's been blind to that. But what do you do if your father is like King Lear? What would it be like? Let's spend 60 seconds imagining what it would be like to have him as a dad. I mean, maybe if you can forget for the moment that he's the king. So just to have that personality be the personality that raises you. I'm not going to say that he's the worst father in the world. He's, he's far from the worst father in the world. But man, so yeah. what do you do if, what, what, is, what does the younger generation do if the older generation whom all three of us agree needs to be shown some respect and obedience towards what do you do if that older generation is abusing this privilege and respect, you know? I was just kind of thinking of like my own situation. I think of, I have a 91 year old grandma and my dad goes up every week to like bring her dinner and stuff. Like he's obviously doing his duty. And I remember my dad always says like, you cannot put me in a home. Like that's like his worst fear, Mm. but he's a great dad and stuff. But I think of this situation, I think one of the first reactions that people nowadays would have would be to send this person to like a home to have someone else (laughs) deal with them. Like you're crazy. You're not listening to reason. So we're just going to send you to somewhere where there's professionals and they'll take care of you and we'll visit you like once a month. Right. So I think it would be different back then, but kind of along the same line. Right. And thing that kind of intrigues me is the fact that Lear did have a daughter that really did love him. But just the fact that Regan and I always forget the other one's name. Goneril. Uh, Goneril. Yeah. The fact that they just they they just overlook all of the good things that their father had ever done and only okay. see him for the bad things as a lot about their character and why they don't okay. respect him as much. I feel like it's a lot more kind of on them than society as a whole. Yeah, that's great. I mean, um, Kent isn't Lear's son, but Kent is another example of the kind of person who can see... He says in Act 1 that what Lear is doing is evil. I think he even uses the word evil. Um, But it is still so familiar with all of the virtues of the man, despite all of the flaws, that he's willing to sacrifice a lot of his own comfort and safety to go follow him. Yeah, so the fact that Goneril and Regan only see Lear as this kind of deranged, tyrannical, self-indulgent egomaniac does say a lot about their character. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just love it so much because it's it's just, it's so... One thing I want to emphasize throughout the course, and one thing I think Shakespeare is so good at, is that it it's so far, and this is what we talked about partly when we read the Nafisi book. That's why I liked starting with that, because she really wanted to, her students to be convinced of the truth that these books are great in part because they don't depict humanity in prefixed moral formulas of oversimplified good and evil. It's not that the older generation is crazy and needs to be toppled, and the younger one is always perfect and good. 
and needs to rise to their moment. No, they're both very flawed. This is either, they both have virtues and vices. And so they, when they interact, it's way more interesting and nuanced and fractious, you know, than simple like, oh, the sun has to set and the new sun has to rise. You know what I mean? Okay. Anyway, Anna, your, your comment about your 91 year old grandma, uh, <laughs> and that's a great comment and your dad and his, and his desire to not be put in a home. I also asked you about hospitality, right? So Lear comes to these two houses. He says in act one that he's, he's going to now spend his remaining days moving from, from house to house with his retinue of a hundred nights. And it will be his daughter's duty to host him and his retinue. And his daughters really don't want that. So this is what Regan says in scene four. This is around line 200. Regan says, I pray you, father, being weak, seem so. <laughs> Calm down. I don't know what, what that's supposed to mean. If till the expiration of your month, you will return and sojourn with my sister, dismissing half your train, come then to me. I am now from home. So I am now away from home and out of that provision, which shall be needful for your right entertainment. It's not, I'm not ready to host you. I don't have all of the stuff that you need. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe she's right. She doesn't have to be lying, but I still think it's just like, it's like mental work that you have to do. This is part of the difficult pleasure of reading. You really have to close your eyes and imagine that you are Lear and you're old and you've just done what you needed to do as a good king, divested yourself of your power. And you knock on your daughter's door who you've given everything to. And she opens the door and says, oh, I'm not ready yet. Why is hospitality so important? I feel like hospitality is just like the action of anything. I'd say that it's communicating that love and care that you actually have for someone, which is why it's so important. And it's interesting because it brought me back to like the very beginning of the play when he's asking, like, tell me how much you love me. Uh He wants these words and he gets the words from them and then he's deceptive. And now it comes into like the action and action often speaks louder as word, louder than words. And here they are. And there's no love or care or anything shown in these scenes. Mm. And this is where you start to see the deception. You're like, oh, wow. They like lied really bad. And he's starting to realize it. But I would say that hospitality is ultimately like how you show that care and love that you have for someone in your life. This had never really clicked for me until you said it, but you're so right. I should, we should, we should all be tying a direct line between this and what Regan and Goneril say in Act One. They say they, I have no words to describe how much I love you. You know, yeah, it's that's easy to say, but can you walk? Can you walk the walk? This is a very astute comment, Anna. Like, is love to be found in words? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe that's why. What's her face? Cordelia. Cordelia. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe that's why Cordelia was like, this is all stupid. Like there are other ways, more productive ways to do this. Like, I'll just show you how much I love you. He knocks on Regan's door and man, Regan shows her true colors. You know, love is an action. This is this this truism, this cliche, love is a verb, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's in the doing, it's in the doing. So she fails to do, Regan fails to do. Yeah, I think it's also, I mean, when I read it as well, I thought immediately back to the scene one. And, but I actually thought about the terms of the agreement of passing down the kingdom in the first place was that he was going to live with them like for the rest of his life. And like, they knew that they knew that that was part of the agreement and they still just, when he shows up like, no, we don't feel like it. That's another great thing that I hadn't occurred to me, but you're absolutely right. This was a kind of legal binding contract. It wasn't informal. It was highly formal. This kind of solemnized ceremony. 
And indeed, that was part of the bargain. That was part of what they agreed to. So not only are they just being horrible daughters, I mean, if your father, if your aged father opens the door, whether or not you have set this binding contract in place, and he says, can I come in? And it's like, oh, the, the fridge is kind of empty, and I don't have a meal for you, and the house is messy, and I have to like, you know, drop off your grandson at soccer practice. But aren't you just supposed to say, but yeah, anyway, come in, we'll, we'll do our best, you know, isn't and I don't say I don't want to prescribe moral behavior, but I mean I'm the first, you know, to to you know sin in these areas. But isn't that on paper what we all agree should be done? You know, come in and I'll give you the best of what I can give you. It might not be much. That's what a, that's what a child should do, I think. But you're absolutely right, Ian. They they have also put another layer on this of this kind of like contractual obligation. I'll give you a third of the kingdom if you indulge me when I knock on your door right. in the castle that is now yours because I gave it to you. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, okay, so what else do I want to highlight here? Lear says some wonderfully horrible things to both of his daughters, such as thou art a boil, a plague sore, an embossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood, you know? Um, we get to the meat of it here when they horribly bargain him down. So they say, you don't need a hundred knights because we all, we have all these attendants who will serve you when you come. So you don't need a hundred, you don't need 50, you don't need 25. You know, he's like down on his knees and then they're kicking him while he's down. What need one? Regan ultimately says, what need one? Now, I told you that we'd be spending a lot of time on this oh reason not the need speech, but it's not totally illogical what Regan and Goneril are saying. You know, it's not like they don't have a point. Why do you need to bring all of your people when these castles that you're visiting are full of people who will be just as good servants to you? So I think it's important to point out that her argument isn't totally irrational or illogical. Uh, this is important because sometimes there are arguments that are immoral, but logical, highly logical. We'll see this. I, I just want to plant a flag here that we'll revisit when we get to like texts like Dostoevsky. There are roads of logic or reason that we could go down with logic and reason being supported all the way, but maybe we shouldn't go down. I think Regan is going down one of them here. And what Lear counters with isn't immediately intuitive, but I think it's highly moral. So he says, so, so Regan says, what need one? And Lear says, oh, reason, not the need. And I ask you like, what does he mean? Let me just read a few lines and then I'll get your takes on this. Oh, reason, not the need. So it doesn't matter if I need them, you know? So it's like your dad drives up and try to modernize this, you know? And he knocks on your door and he's like, oh, I have like three vans full of suitcases with all of my clothes. It's like, dad, you're just staying for a week. You don't need three busloads full of clothes. You don't need them. Technically, this is true. And your dad would say, well, it doesn't matter. Don't argue about the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest thing superfluous. What is your response to Lear's? I mean, I'll keep reading, of course, but just on these first opening two lines, how do you respond to his response? Yeah, I love this. This is one of my favorite Shakespeare monologue speeches um, because it's so cool how Shakespeare uses this symbol of his knights and his kind of entourage to, to almost symbolize the mental state of King Lear throughout the play. Mm. And kind of when he's starting to say this speech, like, oh, reason not the need. I need these knights with me, not necessarily because I need them. I need them with me because if I don't have them, I'll go crazy. Like, yeah. this is the last thing, like giving me any sort of authority. It's yeah. like, as soon as these knights are gone, I'm just, a dude, I'm just an old guy. 
Like I don't nothing. have any. Yeah, I'm, I'm nothing. I don't have anything else. Yeah, I guess it just plays into what you kind of asked. Like, what really makes us like feel important? What gives us purpose? And I feel like a lot of those things really are just the wants in life, and not necessarily those needs. Because he brings it to this comparison of like beasts and creatures. Uh-huh. How yes, uh-huh. they have their very base needs covered. But it's like what comes after that, that really like defines us, gives us identity, what's important to us, what are we going to fight for? And in this situation, he's obviously fighting for his knights. That's something that has given him purpose and honor and whatever it might be. And as soon as you strip that away, it's almost like stripping that identity away from Edgar. Yeah, Edgar, because yeah. it's like taking away what makes him him. This is great. The play keeps asking the question, what is the difference between a man and a beast or a human and an animal? What is the difference? I mean, we are a kind of animal, homo sapiens, right? But we're, we are different. I mean, it's clear that we're different. How are we different? Um, we only need food, shelter, water, and we could survive. We could live a life with food, shelter, water. But as Ian said, we would that would involve a form of prolonged psychological hell and torture that I don't think, you know, I love animals. I don't think animals endure to, or would endure to the same degree. You know what I mean? So we need wants as Anna, as you put them. Some of our wants are actually needs. You know, I don't know what that pyramid of needs is. What is it? The Maslow hierarchy? Yeah. I've seen this before. Yeah. Yeah. So I should probably Google it. We don't have time, but it's a pyramid of uh, you know, first you need water, then you need food, then you need shelter, then you need, I don't know, clothes or something. And then it's like, you, you can introduce a few luxuries like companionship or something like this, you know, once you get those base needs met. But I think Lear here is very wise to argue that some of our wants are actually needs in disguise. If you strip us of all of our wants, he, he looks to his daughters and he says, he says, allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beasts. Thou art a lady. You can imagine him on the stage kind of pointing at her. Thou art a lady. If only to go warm were gorgeous, why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest. So just like put a bunch of like stinky animal skins all over you and then you'll be healthy and safe and protected from the elephants. El- elephants. <laughs> protected. Maybe that too. Yeah. The, the ancient mastodons. Protected from the elements. But look at this dress that you're wearing. It's like shiny and fancy. That fanciness isn't a need, but yet it is because it it is what makes you human. That fanciness is what makes you human. It's quite counterintuitive, isn't it? That luxuries or fanciness or superfluous luxuries are necessary. But I think Lear's right. I think Lear's right. I told this, this story. I'll tell it quickly. I told it actually in another recording last semester, but... I, my first job was at Subway. I was like 16. And I used to work the night shift. It was in the small town. And uh, late at night, always, not always, not every night, but often, there was this man who would come in and he was clearly homeless. He would pay with very dingy bills and lots of coins. And um, he was covered. He, he, he wore this vest and the vest was covered in buttons. And I would, I would, he would go sit down and he would, he would eat his sandwich. And I would watch him sometimes take off a button and like very carefully polish it. Like he would dip a napkin in like his water cup. He would like clean these buttons. And uh, he, later when I read King Lear, and I, I thought about this and he is who came to my mind. He doesn't need those buttons to survive. But if you take them away from him, I think what they gave him was a sense of like control over something or he's not so poor that he doesn't have 
things that he could still part with. You know what I mean? Because he can still part with something. So he's not the poorest of the poor. He, he needs that to survive. He needs that knowledge to survive, you know? Yeah, so Lear just keeps talking. But for true need, I love what happens next. You can tell that the cracks are starting to appear in Lear's mind. But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience. So he starts addressing the heavens. Patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man. Suddenly, don't you guys get the impression that he's starting to be more self-aware? Yeah. He's starting to refer to himself in ways that are slightly more honest. A poor old man as full of grief as age, wretched in both. If it be you, you gods, that stirs these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely. Touch me with noble anger, and let not women's weapons water drops stain my man's cheeks. Know you unnatural hags. I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall. I will do such things. What they are, yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. You think I'll weep. No, I'll not weep. I'll have full cause of weeping. I love that. Why does Shakespeare, it's kind of a slightly leading question, I apologize, make this moment slightly interrupted? Why is Lear kind of like stumbling here? In part, I mean, it's to make it seem more natural. I mean, I think Shakespeare has a very clear vision of how he wants this to be performed on stage as well, right? So, like, I can totally see, like, the actor, like, stumbling on his words and, like, stuttering because, I mean, this is this moment of clarity for King Lear and that he's, like, the first time we really see him angry but yeah. not with other people, kind of with himself. That's and good. then, like, in turn, he kind of moves that anger to his daughter. Like, kind of has that, like, that those feelings of vengeance that kind of, like, rise in him. And then, so I can totally see, like, the actor, like, stumbling on his words. Like, saying, I, yeah. I don't know how I'm going to get you, but I'll get you. <laughs> it just made me think of something. I guess this goes into Ian being a film major. But after I read all this last night, I was like, I should just watch this clip, like, from that movie that 2018 Mm. movie that you're talking about. And it's so interesting because when I read it, I was totally on King Lear's side, like the whole time. Like, wow, these daughters are horrible. And then as soon as I saw it like acted out, it totally changed my perspective. I was like, wow, King Lear actually does seem like insane. In that scene where he's starting to yell and then he turns it on his daughters. Yeah. um, It's scary. I'm like, wow, I would be terrified as those, those daughters and I wouldn't know what to do. And so I guess with that perspective, yeah, he's having this internal reflection, but it's almost like harmful to the daughters as well. They have been so um, overwhelmed by all these nights and stuff. And now it's just even heightened. It's like the very man himself is too much. Mm. With Without all of his nights, he still is too much for them to handle. And so then I started being on their side as well, which was very interesting because I thought I would yeah. never side with Goneril and Regan, but no, he, I started to. <laughs> he, Lear is scary. I mean, he's really scary, you know? And I mean, certain productions will bring this out more than others, but no, it's like, you don't, you don't want to get him angry because he could, he could get really mean, but he's also sympathetic. This is so, so great about this speech because as scary as he is, he's also so sympathetic because at the height of his rage, he stumbles. He wants to deliver this like ultimate linguistic blow. Like I shall, I will have such revenges on you both that the world shall it's like watching a, watching an old man who's too old to box, like, you know, like stumble slightly and miss the punch or something. It's like my heart breaks for him in this moment. As scary as he is, my heart breaks for him. He can't. He doesn't have the mental resources anymore. He doesn't have the physical resources anymore. He is he reveals himself to be what he is in this moment, decrepit and slightly powerless. 
Um, and then the storm and tempest that we hear off stage kind of mimic this kind of elemental rage kind of mimics his rage. I love this. And again, I love what you said too, that it's like this, th I know we're running out of time here, but this, this deserves to be highlighted as well. He, he's been plenty angry up till now. Like you carbuncle, you putrescent sore, you know, of my blood, he's calling his daughters, he even curses Goneril's womb that it, it won't, that it will go sterile, which is like for a father to, to, to a daughter, certainly crossing all kinds of lines. It's horrible. But he is suddenly, I think, scared of his own vulnerability in this moment, scared of his tears that he sees welling up in his eyes and angry at himself that he's so frail. You know, so yeah, we can see that the anger that's been out, directed outward is starting to turn inward and he's becoming kind of self-critical. I shall go mad. And then they lock him out. He, so he runs out of the place, you know, and Gloucester goes to find him or Gloucester goes with him, I guess. And then Gloucester comes back and says, and they, and they ask him, where is the king? And Gloucester says, oh, he calls to a horse, but I don't know where he's going to go. Gloucester says, alack, the night comes on. The high winds do sorely rustle for many miles about. There's scarce a bush. So it's bad out there. This isn't just him going to some pleasant backyard. It, he could die. I mean, it's really bad out there. This is what Regan says in response to knowing that, oh, sir, to willful men, the injuries that they themselves pro procure must be their schoolmasters. Shut up your doors. He is attended with a desperate train. And what they may incense him to, being apt to have his ear abused, wisdom bids fear. Cornwall, shut up the doors, my lord. Tis a wild night. My Regan cancels, counsels well. End of act. It's like, I don't know, responses? I mean, it's a cliffhanger. It is. No, that, that's a great response. imagine being in the theater and like the intermission comes and you're like, <laughs> what? Yeah, what's going to happen next? That's great for sure. Yeah. We maybe have made this point, but Regan, his, her heartlessness is like, he, she's willing to let him die out there. She's not stupid. She knows what it would be like to spend a night out in this wilderness. She's willing. She's like, okay, doors closed. You know, doors closed. It's like, wow, so heartless. Okay. Um, last words, last comments, last questions before we wrap up. Anything in that email that you desperately wanted to say or... I mean, I think this kind of goes into the next act a little bit, but it's kind of, I feel like it's important to realize that at the end of act two, like Lear is like completely alone with like yeah. himself and his fool. And there's like nobody else with him. And I just love like the recurrence of the fool and Shakespeare plays in general. Like it's like my yeah. favorite character, like in every play. But yeah, like I think that's a huge thing. Like his whole back and forth with his fool which I guess is in the next in the next act. So never mind. Comes but. out a lot in the next act, but I'm glad that you ended us with this, Ian, because I think it's in the next next act. I should know. So they're hard to keep straight, aren't they? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the fool says to Lear, "It's like um, he says something, and then Lear says, do you call me a fool?'" And the fool says, "Yes." And Lear says, "Well, how?" And the fool says, "Well, all other titles you have given away, but that you were born with." So we get to see Edgar stripped down to nothing and we get to see Lear stripped down to nothing. He goes from king to a hundred knights to 50 to 25 to one to zero. And the fool, he, I mean, I think he is alone. I think you're right to say that Ian, you could say, well, he has a fool. He has a friend and Gloucester goes out to rescue him. He, he ends up not being alone, but for a moment, for a while, for a brief moment, he is alone. It's just him and the fool. And the fool is a kind of, I don't want to say double or a mirror image of him, but is a version of him. He's staring at himself, at a version of himself when he looks at the fool. So the fool doesn't offer him exactly enormous amounts of companionship or comfort or safety. So he's, 
totally, totally alone, totally stripped down. What I kind of see when he's talking to the fool is um, like the Smeagol Gollum back and forth <laughs> in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, because they're both out. They're both kind of like, you know, stripped down element yeah. to this kind of animal base state. This is definitely true. And they, they do very much seem like alter egos of each other. This is absolutely true. In fact, there's this actually extremely famous Russian. You're a film major, Anna, did you say? No, I was saying Ian is. Oh, Ian is a film major. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe if you have time, you know, in your all of your spare time that I'm sure that you have, go look it up. <laughs> it's this extremely famous Russian version of King Lear. I can't remember the name or the director, but if you just Google Russian version of King Lear, it'll come up. It's like the 60s or 70s. It's black and white. And I think this, if I remember correctly, it's been several years, but if I remember correctly, one of the first instances where the fool comes onto the stage, Lear is like sitting on his throne or he's sitting in some chair. And my memory may have played telephone on this image slightly. So maybe you'll dig this out and prove me wrong. But I have in my mind this image of Lear sitting on his throat. And suddenly you see a hand come out from under his robe. There's like a hand coming out from under his robe. And the fool is hiding in there. (laughs) That's where like the fool hangs out. That's cool. I mean, not the whole play, but that's where he was. So he like slowly crawls out of King Lear's robes. Which kind of corroborates your statement that they're kind of versions of the same mind, you know? Right. Um, this, yeah, that's great. Okay, well, the end. Thank you both for a great <laughs> chat. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you haven't noticed, I like to end all of these recordings with a poem. It's my way of proselytizing for an art form that is quite dear to me. When I was reading Act 2 of King Lear, I kept thinking about the relationship between the generations, between parents and children, and what the generations owe to each other and how exactly they should express their love and respect and what duties they have and and what common mistakes are made in, in the relationships between the generations. One of my favorite intergenerational poems is this poem by Robert Hayden called Those Winter Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold, and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Okay, that's it for now. The next recording, which I hope will be released very soon, is going to be a chat about Act 3 with Sally, so keep your eye out for that. In the meantime, keep reading and keep enjoying the readings.